Magic of the Spheres podcast. This is Sabrina Monarch, and this is a show about spiritual lifestyle and personal evolution. I'm an evolutionary astrologer, a clairvoyant, and a thought leader, and I started this podcast to have more eclectic conversations about astrology as well as all things spiritual and personal development. Just as it is in the title of this very podcast, Magic, One of the biggest through lines of my work and my values is magic and enchantment. And to me, magic and enchantment isn't separate from having a relationship with spirituality or contemplating the divine or our connection to the divine. Something that really shifted things for me along my own spiritual path was gaining awareness of this concept that everything is sourced from the divine, that there is a source and thinking of it as just as simple as the source from which all things come and which all things return to. So it has a kind of cyclical quality to it. And learning this concept that everything in this material life, everything that is material, as in we can see it or touch it or taste it, that it's temporary and that it comes from source and also returns to source. Being that we are also from source, as with all of these material things and our lives are also temporary, there's a basic intrinsic longing to be connected to this source. And one of the ways that we project this kind of longing is by getting attached to the material realm. And I'm not saying that I don't care about the material realm because I do a lot. But there's a difference between locating that intrinsic relationship with the divine and placing it all onto one particular thing, one particular circumstance that we believe is going to bring us that sense of pure magic. Like if this thing in my life works out, everything will be okay. And that creates a kind of anxiety as well about if things are going to go a certain way, are my deepest wishes going to come true? Are things going to be okay? Will this negative circumstance ever end? And this kind of basic anxiety can lead us towards a variety of personal development skills and learning how to manage our minds or harmonize our nervous systems um, or work with our thoughts in a more empowering way. And it can also lead us deeper into our spirituality. On this episode, I asked Achuta Baba Dasa, formerly Adam Ellenboss, um, about prayer. And this was a really interesting conversation. I learned a lot and also really enjoy his perspectives. Achuta Baba is a astrologer, a Hellenistic astrologer, and I've been following his work, um, have gotten some readings with him and have enjoyed conversations with him. Um, since I first found him in 2016. And so I'm really excited to bring a conversation with him onto this podcast. I wanted to ask him about prayer, specifically because I have this 
belief, this feeling that having a personal relationship with the divine is one of the best things that we can do in our lives here. It is, in a sense, the source of magic that I so often talk about. It involves the sense of being connected to a alive cosmos or having an I-thou rather than an I-it relationship with the universe. And one way that I feel that we can do this is through prayer. And in my years of talking about prayer with people and having all different kinds of conversations about it, I have noticed that people are either like super on board, like they already have this felt direct connection to God, to source, however they name that being or that force in reality, or they're kind of turned off by the word, even if they believe in magic. So I wanted to address that. I asked Achuta why that is, like what's kind of triggering about the word prayer itself um, and maybe some advice for working around that. And also we got into different ways to connect with the universe, different ways to connect with God, the difference between petitioning, like asking for things in prayer or just having a devotional conversation or offering something. We talked about the quality of you know, not hearing back from the universe, feeling silence and what that means. And we also at the very end connected this back to astrology. We're both astrologers and I wanted to know how prayer fits into Achuta Baba's astrology practice. Another reason that I had wanted to have this conversation was that I really do feel that just conversing about things like this has a way of being a kind of reminder um, internally, like there's a felt sense of peace or value that we find in being spiritually connected. And I think that when we just talk about it in conversation, that it can catalyze more experiences along this vein of being. I've had a lot of magical experiences personally of feeling a deeper relationship to God and to source because of having spiritual conversations with spiritual people. And this is essentially what this episode is today. And before we get into it, I just want to share a little bit more information about Chuta Baba Dasa, formerly Adam Ellenboss. He is a professional astrologer from the DC, Maryland area. Achuta Baba is the critically acclaimed author of Fishers of Men, the Gospel of an Ayahuasca Vision Quest, and one of the founding writers of the popular web magazine RealitySandwich.com. Achuta Baba holds an MA in English, Language and Literature, and an MFA in Creative Nonfiction Writing. Achuta Baba teaches courses on Hellenistic Astrology and Horary Astrology and is a practitioner of Bhakti Yoga. And here's our conversation. Welcome, Achuta Baba. Hey. Hey, Sabrina. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you about this because I feel like 
you are a really good person to talk to about this topic of prayer. Um, but the first thing I want to ask you is if you had a really like a felt connection to spirituality from a young age and what were some of the significant experiences that led to the spiritual devotion that you experience today? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, yeah, I mean, I was, I, you know, the, the Bhagavad Gita, says, which is a sacred scripture for people who, who are into bhakti yoga, like myself, um, says that people who are a sign potentially that you are, have been on the spiritual path before, say in a previous lifetime is that you'll either be born into a family where someone is quite spiritual or where there's some, um, spiritual commitment of some kind, even if it's not necessarily, you know, the, the one that you end up resonating with, um, or that you'll somehow in your earlier life, you may be exposed to spirituality or naturally interested in it. Um, that was certainly the case for me, um, because my dad was a Christian minister. So I was born into a preacher's family and, um, my uncle on my dad's side was also a, a minister. And there's a bunch of other ministers on my dad's side of the family. Um, so that's interesting. Um, there's also, there's also, I didn't know this until very recently, but there was an astrologer named Virginia Ellen Boss, because my, my given name is Adam Ellen Boss. And um, <clears throat> there was uh, an astrologer named Virginia Ellen Boss, who is a distant relative of mine, who, who was an astrologer in the family as well, who's quite well known and wrote a book about Pluto and Neptune and other things uh, for the um, American Federation of Astrologers back in the day. So, um, yeah, so I weirdly have like even some astrology in my family somewhere. Um, and I don't know, you know, how much of an influence that has or not, but certainly growing up in the church with a father who was, um, you know, Venus in Pisces, Mercury in Pisces in my dad's chart. He's, he's Ooh. like, <laughs> yeah, he, he's like, um, he was a Christian minister, but he was a universalist, right? So he was like, Emerson, Thoreau reading, mm. um, poetry, Native American folklore. He was a really um, broad-minded Christian. So I, I, I grew up in a very fortunate spiritual environment in that sense, where he really fostered a broad-minded understanding of what it meant to be a Christian and also what prayer and, and devotional spiritual life could look like. That was probably the biggest early influence. There's like lots of others, but that was probably the biggest one to start with, I guess. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, I feel like when I first found out that you um, were born into a preacher's family, I could feel that in my heart. I was like, oh, because I feel like when I watch your YouTube channel that there is an element of like, I feel spiritually expanded every time that I listen and like comforted. But you also talk about, you know, what's going on in a very like kind way, but you also don't hold back from talking about difficult things. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I think I, I jokingly at one point I coined my talk sermons from the stars. Cause it's kind of a combination <laughs> of like, you know, current events and astrology and like just everyday advice about how to navigate life with the stars. But then I just can't help but be a little bit of a preacher myself, I guess. Yeah. So one of the, the reasons that I wanted to have this conversation was that I really think that developing a relationship with prayer is one of the most expansive things that we can do in this incarnate life. And I personally have had, um, like I haven't prayed my whole life, but now I do every day, just kind of consistently throughout the day. And I first kind of got the capacity or figured it out or felt into it from just knowing other spiritual people and kind of seeing source through their eyes. Um, 
So I'm wondering like how you would define prayer and any thoughts you might have on developing a relationship to prayer, as well as that for people who have a negative connotation with the word prayer or some like baggage around uh, religious stuff growing up. Yeah, totally. And I do too, because obviously I ended up sort of departing from the Christian fold and making my way to, you know, Peruvian shamanism and then, you know, Indian yoga. And um, I still consider myself a Christian, but I had to, you know, I had to sort of do my own healing from some religious baggage myself. So I could totally understand that while I also still, I have good, you know, good friends. Like I think of Nate Craddock, who you should totally have on your show sometime. He um, is you know, um, a minister, but he's an astrologer. And there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of like, there's a lot to be, I mean, Christianity is such a broad experience for so many people, but anyway, I'm digressing. Um, yeah, the it's, I think it's very natural and very common to have difficult experiences with organized religion. I think we have to differentiate between organized religion and religious experience. Like if you look at the etymological roots of the word religion um, from the Latin re, to re, religio, which means to reconnect and the, the ligio piece, almost like a ligament in, in the body that's been torn or severed. And um, similarly, the word yoga, um, while there are institutions, like I belong to a temple community, right? So there's an institutional like element even to yoga in different parts of the world. Um, but the core meaning of the word yoga is also to yoke or bind together or, or join things that are separate. Um, so religion means the same thing as yoga and yogic experience or religious experience um, just means to, as, as far as I've understood, means to link the soul or bond the soul, the spirit soul to source. And um, so how we do that can it can be done through different kinds of organized rituals, community, um, and institutions, all of which, including our own personal selves, are, are very flawed. And so, a lot of the times, I think what people end up getting damaged by are the established hierarchies, the way that doctrines become sort of crusty and then they become weaponized against people, the way that scriptures are often read, not with for the sake of the soul, but for the sake of a kind of spiritual law enforcement, you know, like all those kinds of things and the way that those happen actually take away from what we're trying to have, which is religious experience. And um, similarly, prayer, I think prayer is difficult for people. I'll give the negative first and then I'll go to the positive Um, for, you know, prayer etymologically means to, for most people, most of the time they'll understand it. And they have the etymological connotation of a petition, like uh, going to your local feudal Lord and asking for, you know, a little bit more time to pay your rent or uh, to go to your feudal Lord and ask for a little bit more room to grow your, your field of, um, you know, crops or whatever. So it, unfortunately, I think it has this because prayer has a petitionary, history and weight behind it. Um, the word is often associated with a state of lack. And I think people are averse to being told you need to pray because what can be heard behind that is you're lacking something and you need to go ask for something. Um, 
And I don't think, I think naturally if people are averse to that, that's a good thing because whether you're a Christian or you're a Sufi or, you know, even a, a Buddhist um, and, or, or a, a yogi, um, I think what we mean by prayer is similar to what we mean by religious experience. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of practice or it's a method through which the spirit soul can connect with source and petitioning the gods or God or source or the higher self or what, what, whatever way people have of conceptualizing it, petitioning for something that you need is one really very small part of what prayer should really encompass as an experience. But the other thing that, I mean, people get turned off from prayer because again, prayer can imply you're lacking something that you need that you have to go ask a higher authority for something. And when we conceptualize God as a higher authority, it really depersonalizes and it depersonalizes and objectifies not only ourself, but the universe and God. And so I think, it's, which is not to say that God doesn't have or that source doesn't have or the universe doesn't have a, an element or a component of being an authority, of being a wish fulfiller, of being a provider, of being a source of solace or comfort or of help. Because it does, we can call out in petition and beg and cry and plead for help when we're really stuck or, or really lost. And, and I think divinity has a function that will fulfill, but, um, you know, in general, that kind of relationship, even on a human level, you know, um, my relationship with my daughters, I think about like when they're begging me for like cookies or when they're, you know, when they're constantly in need and like asking me for stuff, it, it makes, it's really hard to have that. My, what I like most, which is a connection with them. That's not based on an exchange of goods and services. You know what I mean? So like you act good and I'll give you a cookie. No, you don't act good. You don't, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I just think that human beings as spirit souls, all sentient beings, that that is something that, yes, that, that it exists as a possibility that we can fall into and be in a need mode and, and need authority or need structure or need guidance or some higher, power. But generally speaking, the power differential uh, that is implied by such a relationship or petitionary relationship with divinity is alienating for people. And so, um, you know, in bhakti, now this is the positive definition. Um, in, in bhakti, the idea is basically that um, prayer is an activity that in and of itself is valuable. It's not that prayer does something, it's that prayer is something. Um, just like if you're, if you imagine like, and Sufis are very similar in this regard, uh, as, as Bhaktas like myself are like where, um, you know, if you, if you're in love with someone, like probably, you know, one of my favorite things to do with my wife is to like, just go for a walk around the lake and just like, just deeply talk about where we're at and what's, what we're experiencing and like support each other. And, and it's uh, the, the love in that sense is not it's just about listening and hearing and holding space and being there for each other. And there's an intimacy that grows in the comfort and the closeness of just sharing. And, um, that's one mode of prayer. Another mode of prayer could be much more ecstatic, like um, a mode of prayer, like mantra meditation, chanting the names of God, which is a big deal in, um, the Bhakti tradition that, that, chanting of the names of God is a way of absorbing ourselves in the sonic 
embodiment of, of divinity. Like th- these divine names are thought of as like sonic embodiments of a higher, higher, um, being. And so when we're absorbed in that, it's worshipful. It's like singing a song when you touch just your whole emotions and your whole heart and being get wrapped up in that. And you can go through a roller coaster of all different sorts of thoughts and feelings. You're not really seeking anything to come out of it. You're just wanting to give and, and put everything that you are and everything that's happening within you into God and just be like, here it is, here I am. And the reciprocation that we feel when we're entering into prayer that's non-goal oriented um, is, you know, gradually, not always at once, but gradually over time, you start to feel that there's a response. And the, re- the responsiveness comes in all different ways. It comes from within the heart, within the mind. It comes from around the world. But you start to feel responsiveness that there is an other that's there with you in that space. And uh, that then the, a communion starts to emerge. And it's very, very personal. I think it's so utterly personal. Um, and, and I think that's also why telling people to pray or sort of acting like you should or ought to be doing this is also sort of fundamentally offensive to the soul and potentially uh, a triggery or reactionary spot for people with prayer. Because what I think the soul knows is that um, I'm always in prayer. I, maybe it just needs to become more intentional. Um, but there's a way in which, you know, the the spirit of divinity is indwelling within us and we we know that. And so to be told to pray can also be like someone's telling us that our inner dialogue, which is already really a prayer, isn't good enough. And um, uh, I think sometimes it just helps to understand that that being a little bit more intentional, being a little bit more aware, having a practice or a ritual space in which we pray helps the results to become more conscious as well as the prayer to become more conscious. But people could easily get turned off by prayer because they may think, someone's telling me that I don't have an an interior dialogue and I actually do already. So those are probably some of the reasons that people get both hung up and justifiably so, but also why I think, um, you know, prayer is just this really multidimensional and beautiful thing. Those are really helpful distinctions and thinking about the difference between petitioning and just being in relationship. Um, I think could make a huge difference in feeling close to the universe um, as opposed to feeling at the the mercy of it. Um, So what do you think are the metaphysical principles that inform how prayer works? Wow. That's such a big question. Um, Yeah. um, And you know, you sent me these questions to consider in advance and I looked at that one and when you first sent it, I looked at it and I was like, Hmm, <laughs> I'll have to come back to that later. Now here I am. Um, well, there's one thing that came, comes to mind and that I did, I thought of after I read your question um, in advance too, which was um, in Bhakti. And of course, different traditions will have different thoughts about the metaphysics of prayer. One thing that I find interesting that a speaker at my speaker series brought recently was in reference to the word theory in ancient Greek, I think it was theoria or something like that. And for us today, we sometimes think of theories as competing. Um, but in ancient Greek, this world, this word really meant a, 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 a means by which to perceive something. And so I think there's different theories of prayer. You know, there's different sort of metaphysical, maybe theories of prayer. And maybe they're just different ways of turning the jewel or experience of prayer itself 
which is perhaps transrational or translogical. Um, in fact, I'm pretty sure that it is because for me, I conceive of prayer as just con like, like just like you and I are conversing that prayer is really just a dialogue between, you know, um, a, a, a divine being, I call it God, but, and, um, and the soul, which is another divine being. Um, in bhakti, the way that we conceptualize prayer is really interesting. And, um, I, I can't perfectly represent it cause I'm such a neophyte, but I can say what my guru has said and what my teachers have said. And, um, there's a principle, metaphysical principle in bhakti yoga called a, a, a chinta, a beta, beta tattva, a beta, beta tattva. And it is uh, the principle of inconceivable and simultaneous oneness and difference or oneness and duality. Um, and the way that it's explained is like this. So of course we consider Krishna to be like God. And then um, Radha is like the feminine counterpart of God. So there's like a masculine and a feminine aspect of God, you could say. Um, similarly, um, uh, you know, you could think of God in bhakti as like a, a fire. Uh, and then there's these sparks that are emanating out of the fire and the jiva or the soul and material creation in the material universe um, is therefore an, an expanded energy of God, just like a spark is to the fire. And so um, the spark is exactly the same as the fire, but it's also simultaneously different from the fire. And it's thought that the differentiation between God and creation or between God and the soul or source in the soul, whatever word people feel comfortable with, um, is that the separation is necessary for loving relationship to happen. So there's some way in, in Bhakti, we really reject the idea that the goal of spiritual life is to like climb a ladder to fundamentally extinguish our selfness and to merge into God. And, and in Bhakti, um, the idea is that you, you can't merge into God, just like I can't merge into you or you can't merge into me or, you know, I can't merge into my kid or my cat or anything like that. Um, I don't actually have a cat, <laughs> but, um, but the idea there would be that, and the reason for that is that in order for love to be infinitely expansive, there has to be a self and an other and the gap across the self and the other is there specifically so that love can keep dancing infinitely. Uh, so there has to be a source and there has to be that which is other than source and separation can be experienced in one of two ways. You can think of uh, separation in, in pain and in darkness and in ignorance or illusion to be when the uh, created beings, the soul, uh, willfully or forgetfully turns its consciousness away from the natural connection that it has to its source. Um, when it does that, it experiences an illusory realm called Maya, which is thought to be some, in some respect, the material universe or the material experience of the universe, it should be said. And that when the soul says, you know, wait, I feel alone 
why am I here? Who am I? What is my source or origin? Like when it starts to question those things, because it realizes that it's very painful to try to go it alone, that it, that's when the spiritual turn happens and it turns back and it goes, oh, I'm actually a part of this divine whole. And then prayer is, so prayer can be thought of as the experience of starting to go, who am I? That very question or where am I or why am I here is all prayer. As soon as the spirit soul starts engaging with prayerful thoughts, contemplation upon our own nature, even though it appears like it's an isolated question, is actually a meditation upon God, is a meditation upon source. So the question turns us, starts turning us backward. And as we keep then moving in faith toward our source, the intimacy between the source and ourselves becomes intensified, deeper, more expansive. It, you know, it, it, it deepens and as it broadens. And um, in bhakti, we say that uh, there's no termination of that. You're just because um, we're real and we don't want, so we don't want to, um, we don't, again, we don't want to do away with ourselves as individuals. So in bhakti, prayer is something that facilitates growing intimacy with God. And then the overflow of that is intimacy and love and compassion with others. Uh, in a similar way, the Hermeticus, ancient astrological text, really uh, ancient astrological philosophy text, um, talks about, it really conceptualizes heaven in a, in a similar way that heaven is a place where enlightened souls are essentially singing in a kind of beautiful choir. And that that choir is singing the praises of the divine source and feeling the intense reciprocal love of the divine source as they're singing. In Bhakti, for example, uh, one of our greatest avatars, uh, whose name was uh, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who is thought to be the, the avatar of Krishna in the Kali Yuga. And um, he came in the 1400s and um, he uh, initiated the singing and dancing uh, and kirtan in the streets. So some people have, if you've ever heard kirtan before, like he sort of initiated that and um, that sort of joyous like overflow. And what was so cool about that though, is that that was said to be an incarnation of God, which means that like even God more than anything loves to sing and dance and chant and pray about God. And so God incarnates as a lover of God, just to experience what it's like to love God. So in that sense, Bhakti is really esoterically saying that God experiences bliss with us, in us, and through us as we love and devote ourselves to God uh, to the point where there's almost, there becomes like a competition. And this is epitomized in all of the stories of Krishna and Radha, where Krishna is um, always seeking out Radha. Like she has something that he doesn't have. And Radha is always seeking out Krishna. Like you're the greatest, you're the, the supreme divine being. And of course you're the greatest. And he's like, no, 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 no. You get to experience something that I can't experience because I'm not you. So you're the greatest. So that I, that's the model of God's love that we're trying to get to in Bhakti through prayer is also as we go, we're sort of collapsing that distinction of God as up here and superior to us. And, um, coming into a relationship with the divine or with source that is um, deeply and intensely personal so that you, you no longer feel like, Oh, God's so great. It's like, no, God's my friend. God's my lover. God's my, my mother or God's my child or it. So it becomes much more intimate like that. That's the best I could probably do to like 
elaborate upon the metaphysics of prayer in in bhakti and i'm i'm probably like anyone listening who knows bhakti knows that i'm that there's too much i could i could say more and i can't explain it all easily i love that i have um noticed that there's a way that the way that we relate to god can change over time and that and you can just meet people in different um relationships where God is like their parent or their protector, or it's their lover, um, or they are also God and their <laughs> creators and creating their own reality. Like there's all these different ways that we can orient. Um, and it feels like relationship is a key through line through all of them, but that the relationship changes the nature of the connection. Um, something else that I'm wondering about is when it comes to like having faith, um, it feels like maybe there's a surrender of like some part of the conditioned or logical or rational mind. Um, I feel like surrender and faith are deeply connected and that surrender is really emphasized on the spiritual path. And I'm wondering why you think that is. Yeah, that's a really good question. Well, again, I think a lot of the times people bristle at the idea of surrender because it can the idea of surrender can be weaponized. First of all, it can be a way that people have of trying to make a person weak when maybe they should be strong. It can be used to um, make a person feel as though um, you shouldn't have a voice or you shouldn't have rights or you shouldn't have dignity. You should just surrender. Um, so surrender is not passive passivity. Surrender is an, is, is actually kind of like a proactive um, I, I think of it as an acti- as an activity, not a, a surrendering of motion or action, but as a type of action. Um, and this is how Krishna explains it in the Bhagavad Gita to Arjuna too. Um, when he, Arjuna's tempted to leave the battlefield of the, this battle that's like pretty epic that he's involved in, which is a kind of civil war. And he, you know, he basically is like, this is terrible. I don't want to do this. Isn't this horrible? Should I just leave for a cave and meditate? And, you know, Krishna's like, no, like that's not what surrender means. Surrender means to surrender into the the Dharma that you've been born to live on a certain level. So, um, yeah, there's a lot to the word surrender in the yogic tradition. And I think in the spiritual tradition, we have to be really careful of how we're using it and just be really conscious of why we use it. And more important than using the word with others is that we've understood what it means to surrender within ourselves. Um, uh, not that I do, but um, I'm, I'm working on it. Um, but so I think in bhakti, again, uh, I can speak to that. The surrender is like everything in bhakti is it's really easy to understand if we remember what it means to be a relational person. Right. Like, cause in, in, in bhakti, whether, you know, people listening to this may agree or not is totally fine. I'm just trying to, you know, explain the bhakti kind of point of view. Um, that the bhakti position is that God is a person, which means uh, another way of person doesn't mean human person, but a being, an, an actual being like a fox or a squirrel or a human that God is like a, a being. And, uh, that we're beings too. In this world, we transmigrate. So beings can take on many different forms. And even God is said to in Bhakti to have innumerable forms, but God is still a being and we're still beings. The reason that I find this so helpful personally, um, even though I know that's not resonant for everyone, is that um, 
when you think of surrender, it makes it a lot easier to understand what we're actually talking about. And it makes faith a lot easier to understand. So like, imagine again that you're, everyone probably listening to this can imagine a romantic relationship that you've been in before. If you've ever been hurt or not even if you've been hurt, but if you are just really excited and hopeful that this will make you deeply happy, there is a sense in which you have to proceed with faith. You have to take the the plunge. You have to dive in for a lot. Some people are just, they just hurl themselves in with reckless abandon because they're just totally madly in love. In Bhakti, we say those people are saints, you know, when they hurl themselves toward God like that. But for most of us, it's not the case. You know, most of us are pretty fearful or hesitant or skeptical or doubtful. And that's not because does God exist? It's, it's because naturally as people, as spirit souls, we're relational and to get into a relationship with someone or something is risky. Um, like again, if you're, if you've been hurt, it's tough to be like, okay, I'm going to open myself to you and let you in and like, see where it goes. And I know I could be hurt. I know that this could turn out wrong. Um, you know, I don't think spirituality is a safe space in that regard. Like it's, there is a danger to it because God is also like a, as a being like, like, God will relate to us personally. You could say universe or source will relate to us personally. And that's not always going to be in ways that feel really good. Just like any relationship is going to have its ups and downs and is going to be like a real, a real ride, you know? So I think when it, when we talk about moving toward God in faith, just think about it. Like you're moving toward a person, any person, a friend, a boss, a lover, a, you know, a parent that you've been alienated from that there is some, there's some very, it's very, so it's very natural. And it's normal to be like hesitant. And, and so, and that's all really, that's all that faith is, is it's just saying, okay, I'm going to gradually keep moving toward this, keep moving into this um, with the faith that um, it will turn out okay. Or that even if it doesn't, I'll have learned something really important. Um, and in, again, in Krishna Bhakti, we say like that, that, that Krishna specifically says in the Gita that for those who do that, I'm like, I'm, I'm bought, sold and purchased. Like I, I become like a 16 year old who's completely in love with you. That's what God says in the Bhagavad Gita toward the soul who takes that step in trepidation. And then with prayer, you know, with prayer, with moving, um, in faith in, and surrendering essentially, what that means to me is that gradually, you know, so it happens in love too. Like when I met my wife, you know, it was like, I had my own apartment in Harlem in New York city. And I, and I was like my own person. I could come and go as I please and everything like that. And like, there's a certain way in which when we start to leave the illusion of separateness by taking a step to be in a relationship with the divine that, um, we are giving up a degree of control. We are giving up a degree of our sense of autonomy and agency, because what we're really saying is like, I want to be in this together, which means that your will, your energy, your movement in creation, however you want to think about it is going to move through me. And that means that I'm aligning myself with someone or something else. And that, that is tough. It's like, it's hard to do that. Just like it's hard to tango with somebody or it's really hard to drop our guards and and learn how to cohabitate with someone if you're just moving in with someone or whatever. So I think that when I, when you, when one conceives of it personally, um, that it's very easy to understand that surrender is a very natural part of moving into a 
a union with someone else. Um, and that, that if you can conceptualize it that way and know that God is also infinitely patient with our process of surrender and that the, the surrender isn't a process where God is like, yeah, throw down your weapons. I'm the one who's awesome here and you suck or something <laughs> like that. You know, like if we conceive of God in that way, then surrender is going to be a lot scarier. But if we think of it more like a friendship, an unknown, a mystery that we have to open our hearts to, and it's scary and blah, blah, blah. Then I think that's, um, it's a lot easier to conceptualize what surrender is and surrender should then be an ongoing process. Um, thank you for that. That's really, um, expanding of my idea of what surrender is. And I often think of it through like Pisces as an archetype. Um, so this feels like a good segue into like for the people that have a difficult time accessing that connection, like they don't feel like even if they try, um, and it feels like no one is listening, what do you think, um, helps bridge that gap? Yeah, that's really tough, right? Because, um, yeah, the silence of, of divinity is often, um, uh, ironically very loud. Um, and so one thing that there's a book by an author, Japanese novelist that I really like named Shusako Endo. And he wrote a book called silence. And, um, there was a movie that was made about it. I think Martin Scorsese directed it and it, it was about Catholic missionaries who were going to Japan. I think it was, and they were trying to convert Buddhists and they got to this foreign land and basically the, the Buddhist government was killing them and basically being like, you know, get out of here, trying to convert everyone to Catholicism and colonizing. And so they were just like murdering these priests and the priests who were going through all of this were, um, you know, they were going through this place of being like, I thought I came here to do God's will. And like, now I'm just alone and being tortured and like, I'm dying. And it's sort of them waking up in a, in a sense to two different things. One to, um, maybe some of the error of their thinking about like colonizing faith. But the other one is um, that they're also waking up to the way in which God ends up speaking to them by not speaking to them. Um, and the, I can't, it, I can't do justice to how beautiful the message is about when the universe or God or source is silent. But for anyone who is having that experience, I, at a time in my life where I was having a little bit of that, that book was like, um, a real, it was a real balm for the soul. So I always think of that, but, um, one thing to remember is that, um, you know, there, there was a Simon and Garfunkel song, you know, in my parents' generation called the sound of sounds of silence, or the sound of silence. Um, and silence is a form of communication. So, um, you know, and of course, Buddhists are, are very, a lot of Buddhism is focused on this as well. Um, that, you know, if you sit with a friend, I have a good friend of mine from Minneapolis and um, I've known him since I was in the third grade. And he is the kind of person where we could be in a long conversation about all sorts of really interesting things, really engaged. And then there'll come a time when it'll just get quiet. And I've, you know, gone camping, backpacking with him. I've gone to, you know, South America with him all over. And, uh, those quiet moments are full. They're full of a lot. 
And, um, uh, you know, it, it takes a certain kind of intimacy to become deeply comfortable with silence and to understand the way in which silence speaks in the same way that the negative space of a painting says something. If you pay some attention and some time with the negative space in a, in a painting or, or a photo piece of photography or something like that. Um, my sense is that the communication that we receive is from God is never, is never actually silent. There's not, there's never a void. There's never a nothing. Um, but that for some souls, for reasons that I, I can't pretend to understand silence for a period of time is going to be the response. And the only encouragement I could give that I've heard my gurus give and so forth is to try to understand the way in which silence is speaking or what silence might be gifting us with. Um, and remembering also that when it feels like nothing is, is listening, sometimes that's also, and I, I don't, I don't, I don't at all want to say, Oh, you know, if you're not hearing God, it's just your fault. It's your problem. Cause again, I think silence is actually this really multivalent experience that we should be, we should be curious about to try to get curious about the silence and try to move into it more. But, um, but it is also true that many of us, when we enter into prayer, seeking something, I'm looking for an answer, or I'm looking for the listener, or I'm looking for a response that it's almost as though we have to, we have to be sort of stubbornly persistent in praying. And if we keep, if we keep it up, we don't give up just because something isn't coming back in the way that we want it to often enough. Um, we'll finally will hear something speak and it'll be like, Oh, look, you finally stopped asking me for stuff. You, you finally stopped like demanding things. You finally stopped seeking. And now I feel comfortable to like hang out with you. And I think that that is part of the experience. I know for myself that when I'm most urgent in feeling like I need something to prove that it's there to do something for me to da 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 like that, whether it's with a person like my wife, if I'm being really kind of demanding and needy, that it's less likely that she's going to show up in a way that's truly satisfying to me and until I've gotten myself into a position where I'm not in need or lack or, or want I'm reaching out from the heart. Then she kind of shows up from the heart and the exchange is satisfying. So that's really hard though, because sometimes the, it's a good sign though. Like I, I think that a soul that's sitting there praying, but not getting a response is engaged in something that's just about to happen. So I would just encourage anyone experiencing that to stick with it, know that silence speaks and try not to ask for anything. In fact, in Bhakti, we say, one of the quickest ways to get God to respond is not to go to God for anything, not even care or comfort, but to give something to God, like an, even like a home altar that you make for God in whatever way you do or source or however you conceptualize it. And like offering your food before you eat or whatever, just being like, look, you're not talking to me. You're not there, but I have this feeling that there is something there. So like, here's some of my food. I hope you enjoy it before I eat it. Or let me, um, let me just thank you for my body or my existence or the sun or the, you know, whatever, sort of just in gratitude and offering and love, making a gesture toward the divine that oftentimes when, when we do that, we're, we're dropping our ego and our, our sort of selfish interest out. And then the response, the reciprocation is a lot more quick. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so then 
Within that, um, if this is ever relating to a crisis in faith or perhaps when things are just really difficult in life or we can't imagine why the universe would put us through something or why the world is the way it is or anything like that, that leads to some kind of crisis in faith. What do you feel like the um, potential like meaning of those periods of time are? Well, um, they're very different depending on kind of what space of consciousness we're coming from. Um, so let's use two like examples. Let's say that we're, we're at a stage where we don't, we haven't really, we don't have maybe a strong rooted faith. It's, it's really young. The, the, the plant of our devotional life is, is just so vulnerable and young still, which I think, you know, I certainly feel like that's the case for myself. Um, when a crisis comes along and it disturbs our faith that, 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 uh, my soul is real, that my soul is eternal, that God is good, that people are inherently beautiful, that the universe is trustworthy. You know, these kinds of things that I know that I believe that are like the center of my life that, um, let's say that those experiences are shaken by some kind of an experience. Um, for, first of all, to a person, you know, again, who's in such a, a state of mind, it is um, possible that one would abandon their spiritual path or sort of fall down from their practices or, or what have you. And um, in the bhakti tradition, we say that all progress is never lost. So like any progress you make whatsoever spiritually is never lost. And you come back to where you left off eventually, even if you sort of fall off. And that those those periods of like falling away from our practices or our knowledge of what is true and real, that those interludes um, are deeply, deeply meaningful, that they are just like, um, you know, again, to use a, a human example, like a, a lover's relationship, that when the lover and beloved are separated, you know, when, when it's like, okay, I've got to go on a business trip or something like that. And then I'm, I'm apart from like my wife or my kids, that that separation intensifies the taste and desire that I have for intimacy and closeness with them. Um, so it's painful that we, that in crisis, we maybe fall away, but in bhakti, we say that you'll always come back to wherever you were last, whatever progress you've made. If you fall away from it, you eventually come back to it. And when you come back to it, your faith will have intensified. And that's what waters the plant and makes it grow and the roots grow stronger and so forth. So those are like rhythms. Um, and, and as they get, as the soul grows right now, let's imagine that you're really advanced, like a, a saint or a, maybe a Jiva Mukta, more enlightened person, right? Um, that those periods are actually in some ways more intensely blissful for the enlightened soul than the times of intense closeness, because there's a way in which, um, love and separation can be more intense and powerful. And for perhaps, I don't want to say like less evolved, but like, let's say someone who's a little, uh, like not as firm in their spiritual path that can feel like, Oh my God, like I'm lost. What has happened? I'm being really shaken for a person who's really strong. The exact same kind of uh, dark night of the soul experience can actually be experienced as a form of ecstasy that's rarer and higher than others. That's how it's described in the like upper echelons of ecstatic bhakti experience. So 
I think that um, if you read not only, you know, in the Bhakti tradition, but in the lives of many saints and all sorts of traditions, like when I was in Calcutta, um, I, I spent some time at Mother Teresa's um, convent and I read some of her journal and diary entries toward the end of her life, which were deeply melancholic. Um, they were, she was suffering very deeply what, 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 with what would appear to like your average, let's just say lay person in the Catholic church to be like a crisis of faith, like calling out to God, like, where are you? Where, like, you know, like really feeling abandoned, um, this kind of feeling of being a failure like this. Um, what people don't understand when, after she passed away, you know, there was, there were people who, really deeply questioned her faith when they read that so unfortunate, right? Because actually that the deep intense melancholy that she was feeling was being poured out to God. She still knew where to put it. You know what I mean? And so that in Bhakti, we would say that's a, that's the symptoms of a very advanced soul. Um, not that we're into comparing and measuring with one another, but just, just kind of, that we really venerate those qualities as saintly because it is, it, it's actually um, even in, in Vrindavan, which is the sort of mythical heaven of the Bhakti tradition in Vrindavan, these experiences of the feeling of separation, of crushing loneliness, of defeat, of failure, of isolation, of fear, anxiety, separation, that these still exist in heaven, but that in heaven they are experienced with the full knowledge of what they are, which is the, the aching and the, it's a different form of the love. So I think that they're always meaningful, but, um, and we, you know, we have to trust that we're never lost, that we, if we've been in a space of feeling centered and close to divinity, that even if we fall away, we will come back. There's infinite patience. There's infinite room for us to come back. And we do. And when we do, we'll come back a little stronger. Our plant of devotion will be a little bit more ready for those experiences. But the point is never to do away with those experiences, just like in a relationship for a relationship to grow in intimacy. It, it needs the, it, it needs the friction and the, the difficult times as well. So in Bhakti, we, we never want to get rid of those things. They're even, they're depicted as even existing in heaven. Yeah, I think the first time that I heard you express this, it was on your YouTube channel, which is why I wanted to ask you about it here. But um, that concept was new to me and um, helped me not view <laughs> like lulls in faith as a problem. And then as soon as it wasn't a problem, I relaxed and then everything like seemingly came back. Um, so I think that there is that interesting kind of dance of like not fixating, not grasping, um, not being in need. And then there's abundance. Um, and you've been sharing that sentiment in a few different ways. Um, so what about like, are there any specific prayers or like prayerful activities beyond a lot of the ones that you've mentioned, um, like offering gifts um, that you think can be conducive toward like spiritual illumination or expansion? Yeah, um, that's a great question. In in bhakti, the core activities are, um, you know, the the basic, you know, teaching is always remember Krishna and never forget Krishna. Um, one is in the positive, one is you know in the negative. Like don't forget, and the other one is always remember. Um, 
And so the remembering activities um, that, that to remember God, to bring prayer to place. Paul said, the apostle Paul said that we should pray without ceasing. So prayer really becomes a moving way of life and it becomes about how we organize the activities of our life. So in yoga, there's a whole science behind it in terms of like when to wake and rise, what kinds of foods to eat to keep the temple of the body clean for the indwelling spirit soul. Um, in our relationships, how do we handle ourselves and so forth? So it's a, it's a whole science, but, um, some simple things are, um, hearing about God, uh, hearing about source, um, which we do in bhakti in a variety of ways. One is we hang out with people who like to sit and talk about God. Right. And so like, literally that's as simple as it is. Make sure that your, your life is surrounded with people who want to talk about spiritual matters and who want to talk about them, not just in terms of managing internal crises, but in terms of like looking, it's like sitting out at the, you know, if you, if you like to go and sit in nature and adore things that you see, or look at the stars and appreciate them with a friend or go and sit on the beach and just appreciate the weather, that there's a way in which for prayerfulness to be a way of life that we have to basically go to the spiritual beach and look up at the spiritual sun or the moon or the stars or whatever, and be like, how beautiful. And we can do that just by literally just by hanging out and talking about spirituality with one another. Um, and in that way, we're, we're bringing God into the way that we, we live um, and we're bringing it into our relationships. So you, you, it's like a multi-pronged approach. You want God to come in through your relationships, through your speech, through your mind, through what you take into your mind and your body um, to be most conducive to that spiritual remembrance. Um, one of the easiest ways that we keep in the spirit of remembrance, devotion and remembrance are really the key words. And that's why it's such a lunar activity. Like devotion is so lunar because the moon is the planet of memory and is the planet of devotion and of, of nurturing things. Um, so mantra recitation, 108, the number of the moon is on the mala. And we recite the names of God over and over again on the japa, the, the mala beads in a circle uh, that, um, circumambulates a center bead. And that circumambulation is just like the moon that, you know, goes essentially is mirroring the light of the sun and going around us. So devotional activities consist of, you know, whatever you can do to bring remembrance into your life. Remembrance comes in again through talking with friends, through reading, you know, for us in the bhakti tradition is through reading sacred texts. It's through call and response kirtan, like congregational chanting and singing of God's names and so forth. It comes in through tending to a home altar, uh, comes in through, um, you know, trying to teach and, and, and bring God consciousness to other people, um, and, uh, stuff like that. So there's so many different ways, but when you're doing any of it, it's bhakti, it's prayer. That's, that's the idea. Mm. And then, um, how does or prayer play into your astrology practice? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Well, um, you know, I think that we have to look back at the ancient roots of astrology to understand what it was used for. And especially in India, for me, you know, how did it participate in the yogic science? 
Um, and that's a, a, it's complicated because on the one hand, astrology is kind of about everything that we shouldn't be doing when we're trying to live a prayerful life, which is namely to obsess about material outcomes that exist in the future, right? So there is a way in which, you know, potentially, I know a lot of uh, most astrologers that I know and like, including yourself, don't practice this way, right? But a lot of people who come to readings are like, what's going to happen to my money? What's going to happen to my job? When am I going to meet someone, right? So when we are really anchored in our material reality and the search and pursuit of temporary forms of gratification or happiness in the material world, forgetting that we're going to die someday and that, you know, we'll, we'll then take another body and start obsessing about the same, maybe relatively similar things. So we should get, maybe we should start thinking about a different form of happiness. In other words, that a lot of people who come to astrology are not necessarily in that mindset. They're not, they're not necessarily, they're, they're more concerned with, you know, the material plot lines that are in front of them, which I'm not suggesting are nothing, but how do those plot lines start to become spiritualized? How do they start to become prayerful to use the language of our kind of conversation today? Well, from the ancient perspective, when a person comes to realize that there are larger forces in the universe that are shaping and participating in the outcomes of their lives. Like I have an intention, I have free will, I have agency, but then I go in and, and perform actions and activities in the world and I get responses, like I get feedback and it doesn't all turn out the way that I think it's going to and I'm not fully in control of all of it. I'm a co-creator, you know, and I'm, and I'm also, um, so once when a person, when astrology starts demonstrating that there are karmic laws of the universe, that there is divine intelligence, that life is to a certain extent um, being overseen by forces and gods and things that are bigger than us. When a person comes initially invested in their, you know, their anxiety about outcomes, astrology may um, actually, you know, speak to the timelines of those plot lines. Oh, this is when the job thing is going to happen, or this is the money thing or whatever. Um, but actually the real gift of astrology is when the person goes and lives through it and starts deepening their trust in these forces, in these divine powers and in themselves as a spiritual being who had a destiny from the time they were born, they start to implicitly, they come to start to understand on a subtle level, I'm a spirit soul. I'm not my body. There are larger forces in the universe of which I am a part. Those things start to set in over time with astrology very slowly. And in that sense, it's a kind of existential medicine that's treating material anxiety. Um, but it happens very, very slowly. And um, the practitioner has to make sure that they are not um, adding to a person's anxiety about the future or making them more invested in the future in the positive or negative. Um, and as we're doing that, um, we should be modeling for people that look, my happiness as an astrologer, my ability to be a good reader, a sensitive instrument to these forces is coming from a, um, a spiritual lifestyle of some kind. That's my take on it anyway, that, 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 so, you know, people know like, oh, you know, Achuta like really tries to live a spiritual life and, you know, his, his, there's a, a, a sense in which the way as we started off talking about, there's a sense in, in which every time that I talk about the transits, I'm trying to also say, okay, here's the like field of karma that we're entering into. Here's the timeline or whatever. Here's the different multivalent possibilities that we're working with. But just, you know, just kind of 
to also deliver some spiritual insights that can help us to take up a prayerful existence. Because actually, um, when you live a prayerful life, there's, there is anything and everything becomes an experience of deepened intimacy with divinity. And, and so we, we, astrology becomes a way of reflecting upon and anticipating new prayerful experiences rather than it, it being something that um, is uh, a part of our material anxieties. And that's exactly what Plato said that astrology should do essentially. And the hermetic philosophers said that it should do as well is that astrology should um, help us to contemplate and see the divine eternal uh, in our experiences. And that, that, that meditation upon those things for the practitioner should be, that should be the practice. That should be the practice that we're doing this to uh, entrain our heart and soul to these divine forms moving through our experiences. We're not trying to manipulate them. We're not anxious about them. We're, we're trying to enter into them prayerfully. And, um, but for the, for the client, for the one who's anxious, we should give them the information that they're looking for about the karmic reality that they might be more engaged in. But then um, we should do so in a way that also, models for them a, a more prayerful mode of engagement. And I think we can do that in a client counseling setting. Uh, in fact, I think that maybe is the greatest gift that modern astrology has given us is the, the ability to actively reflect with the client a little bit more psychologically upon what's happening rather than just delivering the um, material forecast, so to speak. Yeah. The material stuff is something that I'm learning from you more now, like how to, um, like, I feel like Hellenistic and traditional can offer some of those predictive tools. And I've always been in a psychological lens of it. So I'm excited to be able to integrate those. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's always been like, I can't tell you when you're going to get a new car. <laughs> I, I don't know how to do that delineation, but let's talk about your feelings. So. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and they're, they're both really valuable. Like I like to say that it's like, um, you know, f for the person who comes in and there's so many people that want to access astrology primarily because they're interested about the car or they're like, like, and, um, I find that if we're able to address that while also having the psychological skill set that we can reach more people and kind of bridge this gap that that's why I call my class ancient astrology for the modern mystic. Hmm. So, um, you have some amazing offerings and a great YouTube channel. So, um, how can people find, um, your offerings and work with you? Yeah. Um, so it's nightlightastrology.com. That's my website. Sometimes people say nightlife, like it's a dance club, but it's nightlight. So <laughs> nightlight astrology. Um, that's my how website. Has you that can... been around 10 years, a couple of days ago. I have yeah. this like vague feeling that I found it on Google like a long time ago before I like even started practicing professionally, but I'm not totally sure. It's yeah. I've been around. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been around for a while with a blog and all that. Um, and, uh, yeah, you can find me on YouTube at uh, nightlight astrology and, you know, Facebook is, um, Achuta Bhava or Adam Ellen boss, my given name. Um, I'm on Instagram too. I don't do Twitter. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm minimally engaged on Facebook now. Um, but, uh, yeah, I have classes in Hellenistic astrology and then I like to rap about, you know, Bhakti and astrology like this on my YouTube channel. 
Awesome. Thank you so much for um, sharing your ideas and wisdom around prayer and spirituality with us today. Yeah, thank you. And I, I know that uh, it's it's hard to articulate some of these things concisely. So I uh, apologize for being long winded on some of them. Uh, not at all. <laughs> well, thank, thank you for having me, Sabrina. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Chita. Thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation. This conversation inspires me to offer more in my prayer space. Um, I do petition quite frequently. Um, I also pray frequently, but I'm just kind of recalling now as I record this outro that on Valentine's Day, this last Valentine's Day, Achuta Baba published a video on his YouTube channel about compatibility and astrology. And as an offering to the people who are listening, he was saying something to the effect of, you know, when you're single and you're desiring relationship, you know, maybe something that you really, you know, you really want. And then when you are in a relationship, you think about the time of being single and you're like, you know, no matter how happy you are in the relationship and you're like, Oh, that, that freedom or that time that I had to myself was actually kind of nice. And so to just like really fully enjoy where you're at and to consider, you know, if you have this yearning to offer something to the beloved, um, in human form that you can also spend this Valentine's day you know, in the context of this Valentine's Day video, writing a love letter to God. And to be sure, you'll get some kind of response. So I actually did the activity. <laughs> I wrote a love letter to God. And um, it's not a bad thing to do. And this conversation reminds me that there's more of that to be had, um, that giving and offering love is actually a really abundant resource that we have internally. And that can be done in a prayerful way of having a consistent way of offering love and gratitude. Going to the spiritual beach and looking at the spiritual stars with spiritual people is also something that I'm going to be thinking about. I like that image. All right. I hope that you have a beautiful week. Thank you so much for listening. And do find me on Instagram at Sabrina Monarch and Twitter at Sabrina underscore Monarch. I'll be posting um, a promotion of the podcast there. So that's a really good place to leave a comment what you thought about this episode. Um, if there's anything that you want to share, I would love to hear from you. All right. Have a beautiful week. Bye.